Hello, viewers and listeners. Welcome back to another episode of Slaves to the Algo. I'm Suresh Shankar, founder and CEO of Crayon Data, an AI and big data startup from Singapore, a podcaster and host of Slaves to the Algo. Slaves to the Algo is my attempt to demystify the age of data and the algorithm, sharing learnings from myself, from other professionals, to understand how they are using or being used by algorithms and data in their personal and professional lives. At Slaves to the Algo, we don't attempt to portray our future as either dystopian or utopian. It is just what it is going to be. But what we try to do is to bring the use of data and algorithms more into our conscious thinking selves. And in this particular episode, we are focused on a separate sub-theme of, of, of Slaves to the Algo, which is the fact that at Crayon, we are constantly inspired by the stories and professional achievements of women who chose to break the bias. The tech industry has been notoriously challenged when it comes to women representation. 2020 study found that only 28.8% of the tech workforce is women. There has been a steady increase in the past few years, but clearly it's not fast enough. And at this pace, it's gonna take us more than a decade for women to gain equal representation in the industry. And while we do work as an industry on making this a reality, the industry is constantly looking for role models who are blazing a trail already for other women, which is why we're doing a mini series of episodes featuring women in tech, those who are reinventing the technology landscape as we speak. And today I'm particularly thrilled to welcome a social entrepreneur, a lady whose work focuses on creating systemic inclusion. Lucia Gallardo is a Honduran entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Emerge, a company dedicated to developing technological solutions for the social impact. In 2020, Lucia was named one of MIT Technology Review's innovators under 35. She sits in her spare time on the boards of various nonprofits like Crypto Kids Camp, the Rainforest Partnership, tech organizations like the Penta Network, the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance, and V Global Studio, which supports women entrepreneurs across the world. She was named the North American Female Blockchain CEO of 2019 nominated for Royal Bank of Canada's Entrepreneur of the Year Award and Future of Goods 21 Founders to Watch. That's a lot of stuff that Lucia gets up to, but she does have a day job and that day job is to be CEO of Emerge. What a lovely day job because Emerge calls itself in their own words, a humanitarian technology company that enables the more efficient, more humane and more transparent movement of people, goods and data around the world. I couldn't say that better. Welcome to the show, Lucia. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really appreciate the, the focus that you're giving the show. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really thrilling work. I think uh, there's a lot of women doing interesting work in the space, but very often they don't get the mic. So I'm super excited that that's what you're featuring uh, for this series. So thank you for having me. I'm, I'm uh, really happy to be here. And it's uh, not just about women not getting the mic. I think it's also the fact that social entrepreneurship doesn't get the mic. And so we're actually yeah. hoping to kill two birds, really, <laughs> with one stone in this, in this particular show. But Lucy, I always like to start the show the slightly more personal way, right? I mean, you know, we're all professionals. We use technology, we use data, uh, and we're affected by the developments in data and AI. But um, at the end of the day, we're also human beings. And, you know, we all understand that data impacts our life both positively and negatively in many different ways. Could you share some examples of something that you think, hey, wow, you know, the data really made my life uh, fantastic and insightful or possibly miserable? 
<laughs> yes, I'm miserable more often because I play with it so much. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I mean, there's like very interesting, interesting use cases. I'm a particular fan of like very like simple regressions that I think just make the right relationships between uh, data sets. And I'm also a very fan of anything that accounts for um, for randomness. And I'm a big fan of anything that uh, optimizes uh, image or object recognition. So those are kind of like the areas of life where I um, I live. Um, in the case of uh, object and image recognition, we were uh, piloting this uh, solution once that related to truth telling in like the context of truth telling, because obviously, you know, when you take a person's testimony of something that they've experienced in life, um, I think that uh, it could be really hard to vet what's true and what's not true because people experience things in a particular way. And so there's something about, you know, the way that people talk about fake news that makes it so that um, they, they want to solve for truth. But, the, but it's really impossible. To me, it's impossible to solve for truth because it's just the way people see the world and it's informed by who they are as people, the experiences that they've had, the way they view the world, their opinions, et cetera. But what you can solve for is like the surrounding context of truth. And so, you know, does it make sense that this person would, you know, say this? In, in the case of the, the pilot use case that we did, it was related to the migrant caravan. Like, did their, you know, GPS, mark that they actually were walking across Mexico at the time? Uh, did they receive a, a service anywhere in Mexico uh, alongside the caravan? Were they following the same cities as the caravan? Um, you know, are they from the country of origin that they're saying, does their accent sound like that? Do, you know, do they have any imagery to support that? And so then you start piecing all of these like data points together and you start make, like rendering outcomes of saying like, yeah, this totally makes sense. Like, uh, you know, it adds up. And so we were experimenting with that because we understand that the current approach to fake news just cannot be solved by looking for truth, but it, especially in the cases of personal testimony. And so when I think about the applicability of contextual evidence and whether like contextual evidence can support statements, um, then you can look at the applicability of that in many different situations in sexual assault, in uh, any cases of whistleblowing, in cases of you know, humanitarian and, and uh, dis displacement and, and saying, okay, this, you know, everything this refugee is saying actually makes sense. Like we, we want to resettle them faster. And so when you start looking about uh, solving a problem from a particular, like a particular approach that does not actually solve for something that is almost impossible to, to solve for, if not totally impossible to solve for, then I think we open ourselves up to being able to set precedents that could solve other problems in better ways. So um, I'm particularly interested in algorithms that can piece together data uh, sets that are from a very, very you know wide types of data and sources, uh, as well as anything that supports contextual evidence. Um, and I think that there's a lot that can be done with that. Um, and then I love everything that, um, I guess like my wallet hates that social media algorithms are really effective on Instagram to show me what it is that I don't have but want. <laughs> um, my Instagram is actually full of travel destinations and restaurants, to be frank. Uh, it's become quite problematic. So if I'm being lighthearted about it, I guess I, I have a love-hate relationship with those algorithms. <laughs> You know, it's so it's so it's so uh, refreshing to hear the first part of what you just said because everybody who comes on says Instagram does that, Netflix does yeah, this, yeah. Amazon does this, something does that, and the first part of what you just said about how data and algorithms and can be really used to do so many different problems. You know, news, yeah. you know, yeah. refugee trains, you know, so many, you know, sexual assault. You hit so many 
different ways in which data can actually change the world. But I want to go back a little bit in time, um, um, Lucia. One of the things that you said is that Emerge has been inevitable since I was 12. When I was 12, I knew nothing except I wanted to play cricket. Okay. So I just eight. want you to eight. share. Eight. Since I'm eight. Okay. Eight. Okay. That's even, yeah. that's even better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, there's obviously something that you knew. That's something that gets you going and that's, that's yeah. made you the entrepreneur. Some defining experiences. So yeah. how are you so sure? What shaped that journey? Yeah, you know, I, um, I think technology is like a very interesting thing because it's just very neutral super neutral. Um, uh, you know, you can do great things with it. You can do terrible things with it. It's always uh, something that we inject our, you know, intentions and our, uh, and our purpose. And sometimes we have good purposes that turn out bad, you know, that has happened before we've seen that happen and vice versa. And so um, basically the reason I make that joke is that I started Emerge when I was eight is because I, that's where, where my intention was formed. So in uh, 1998, I'm currently aging myself. Um, my home country, Honduras, where I, I, I was living and I was born and raised, um, it went through this very intense natural disaster. It was a hurricane um, and it like swept the country. It destroyed hundreds of thousands of homes. And it, listen, I think it's at our, they calculated it set our economy back 150 years. So it was very devastating to so many people. I was very fortunate um, that my house lost electricity for about two weeks, but that was really, you know, there was a little bit of flooding, but that, that was mostly what well, what I went through as a, you know, but at the time, my parents, they were uh, organizing donations. Um, and so they would bring my siblings and I and they would make us help. And so, uh, you know, we would uh, hand out water and food and clothing and anything else that, that we needed to. And there's something about, you know, you can be eight and not understand the world and not understand the economics of like losing your home in a country that has 62% of the population living under the poverty line, living under $2 a day. So you don't understand that as a child, but when you see desperation and when you see like the intensity of human need in a crisis, I think you never really forget that. Mm -hmm. And I just did, I couldn't. And so uh, I became very interested in volunteering and in, and in, you know, this idea of like generosity and compassion and, and my parents very, very much fostered that. And then when I was 12, uh, which is the other big memory, uh, is uh, I was in a science class and my teacher, Mrs. Hiron, she uh, gave us an assignment. She said, you know, anything we've learned this year, just take it and apply it to Honduras. Like show us how it's a real use case, which, you know, this, this podcast is doing. And you'll see the impact of it because when I did apply it, I chose the theme, the theme of water. So obviously between a hurricane and this theme of water, it's been a very consistent uh, issue in my life that's led me in very, into very good places. Um, so, uh, I went and I took a tour of a water purifying plant, um, because we had learned about water purification and, uh, don't ask me a single word about water purification. Cause I really don't remember, but on the way down from the plant, there was this neighborhood that lived right next to the largest, uh, power, the largest water plant in the city. And I was like, let's add, you know, very naive 12 year old me said, let's add a human element to this project. So we get out of the car and we, we knock on the first door and we ask if we can interview them about what it's like to live next to the plant. Because, you know, I was thinking like a human element of saying it's noisy, it's inconvenient because there's trucks coming in and out, et cetera, et cetera. And she said that their community didn't actually have running water, but they lived next to the largest water plant in the city and they just didn't have it. And they 
would collect their water in different ways, either from the rain or from a well 90 minutes away, or they would uh, buy it when they could, or every two weeks, whatever the city didn't use, this water plant would donate to them. So every two weeks, the plant was actually like they interacted with the plant to receive that donation. And I remember like very clearly, I can still feel it when I think about this memory is like the progression of emotion that I went through in thinking like at first, you know, I was very sympathetic and sad and that was the, the wrong approach. They didn't need my sympathy. What they needed was someone that un like wanted to understand why this issue happens in the first place, what kind of society creates intergenerational poverty and, and cycles that are super hard to break out of. And why is there such deep inequity in access to basic needs like water or shelter or electricity, et cetera. And so it kind of became like inevitable that I would work in the social impact space. Obviously I didn't know how I was gonna do it. And for many years, I thought it was gonna be through public sector work, but then I did do public sector work and obviously I'm not there anymore. <laughs> Um, but I think, uh, I think for me, it was just inevitable. And then when I discovered technology, I, I immediately, to me, it was always a tool. It has never been an interest necessarily in like, um, oh, I think this technology is going to save mankind because I am very cognizant of the fact that it's always changing. It always needs to be improved. It's, um, that's the way we need to look at technology. And so when I started my company, it was really about this idea of saying, we have all of these tools at our disposal. They're changing exponentially and they're making possibilities out of you know how, the way that they're changing and so how do we take the DNA of these technologies and build solutions around them but in a way that democratizes not just accessing this technology so that it's not just big corporates that can afford to play with them that that receive the benefits of them but how do we do that in a way that is highly inclusive of the access and the benefits but also of participation so to me it's very important to use teams that are very diverse around the world that are very diverse in terms of life experiences, of educational uh, achievement. And so, um, so it was intended to be a company that brings about, I guess, or sets precedence in technological justice as a concept in saying, we, wanna, we want everybody else to be, be benefiting from this technology, be participants in how we design the next technological waves. And also um, to just, you know, be able to feel like it's actually helping them in, in very real ways and addressing problems that that need to be solved because we're living in a, in a world that is getting, un unfortunately, statistically worse in, for many people. And so, uh, so that's and that where it's at. To, uh, and first of all, thank you. It's such a wonderful story, right? I mean, you know, many of us uh, do go through difficult moments in life. Not too many people have used as a foundation to actually choose a path that's very different. And the fact that you did it, I mean, hats off to you. Uh, the, the social part, I understand. Where's the tick part? What are the tick? How did that tick part get triggered in you? I mean, <laughs> that was an did you use the tick? <laughs> I was like it? so done with, the, I was so done with the public sector. I just felt I was exacerbating issues. And I had been working in uh, diplomatic affairs. So I was dealing a lot with like international relations, international uh, trade, etc. So I had a lot of experience with international markets. Um, and so at one point, there's a tech company in I, I received two job offers, I was living in Montreal at the time, I received two job offers, and I was very surprised by them. So the first one was from an artificial intelligence company that was doing predictive price modeling for airfare. It's called Hopper. It's now like a, a unicorn in Canada, I yep. think. Um, but it was at the time, there were less than 20 people working there as a very tiny company. And they said something like, you know, we want to, to grow out of Canada. We just don't know, don't know the international markets very well. 
And I'm like, great, because I don't know AI very well. <laughs> um, and so then the other job offer was um, was this, uh, this uh, nonprofit organization that was taking hardware engineers and neuroscientists and make, making a community out of them, putting them together in rooms so that they could just see what would happen. Um, and so obviously we have this like wave of neurotech coming out of Montreal. And this was like a big reason they were a fire starter in that. And so they said, we currently have these like little chapters in Boston, Montreal, Toronto, and San Francisco, but we want to be global. And I was like, cool, but I have no idea what you're doing or why, but I love it. Like, let's, let's you know, take it global. And so I took, uh, obviously, you know, startup culture, it's very friendly for saying you can work whatever hours, we're very flexible. And so I took both job offers and I just dived so deep. Like once I was in, it was, I was so curious. Uh, I am, I, I think uh, I describe myself as an intellectual omnivore because I just want to know how everything works. So I, um, I just got very curious about the technology and the more that I learned about it, the more that I wanted to know more. And so I just went down these rabbit holes of technology and I, immediately started seeing making connections between you know possibilities in neurotech and possibilities in AI and then I started looking at other technologies so I started learning about IoT and blockchain and then very slowly um my mind just kind of like puzzle puzzle made its its way into understanding that like if all of these are tools why aren't they directed at the mission that I care about and so that's sort of how it how it happened and that's such a lovely backstory. You know, Steve Jobs talks about connecting the dots backwards and you just connected the dots of your life beautifully backward in a, in a lovely way to, to tell us, I think, how you reach here. But um, Lucia, coming to where you are now, um, you're yeah. a social tech entrepreneur and I think that's defined as people who are not just saying I'll build cool technology and yet another app to sell us something more, though we all love that part of it, but it's also something that's actually about doing good. Uh, could you share with us some examples of, you know, social tech entrepreneurs that you meet in your very things who are making um, a considerable impact with, with, with innovative use of data, of AI, yeah. of tech? Yeah, so one of my projects right now that uh, we're sort of highlighting is called The Eternals. Uh, we're a co-founder of the project with an agency called DigiGo. And uh, one of the things that we were thinking about at, when we first started was this idea of the current trend NFTs. And so... Uh, Non-fungible tokens are essentially a digital asset where you're creating a chain of custody of how the, the transactions inform um, sort of the journey of that asset in, as it changes hands and as you know it, its valuation changes, et cetera. So, uh, so we were taking that and we were seeing a lot of projects come out of that that were, um, you know, like they were really nice pieces of art or they were profile pictures that were humorous or things like that. And so we looked at that and we're like, actually, this could be a very cool thing if we played around with it, if we made it more complex. And so how can we make it more complex? And so we came to this project called the Eternals and it's essentially for rainforest protection. So uh, we built in a three-dimensional, uh, well, actually we built 10,000 three-dimensional NFTs that start out as like baby plots. So the flowers are closed, the trees are tiny, they're seedlings. Um, it's very, very small. And then what we did was we started feeding it data. And so this data relates to your engagement toward rainforest protection as a cause. So when you donate to the charity that we're working with that you know does rainforest protection work, when you participate in community events that relate to learning about the rainforest or AMAs or things like that, when you uh, engage with our game. So we built a, a, a game for it. And so you can plug your NFT into the game and then explore it and play with it and nurture it uh, when you do that. 
And, um, you know, when, when you just engage with the community and the cause, the more that you do, the plot starts to blossom. So it starts wow. to like the flowers open up, the trees grow. Uh, eventually you can get to levels where there's like new features and the plot itself changes. Um, so it just becomes a lot more visually complex. And the fun part about that is also that when you go quiet and you stop engaging, stop playing, stop donating, uh, the plot starts to revert back to its basic state. So it, wow. it is uh, intended to be a reflection, like a live uh, data reflection of like, how really committed are you to the cause of rainforest protection? How active are you in this in this journey? Um, and then what is your own by default measure of impact of personal impact toward the cause of rainforest protection? 55% uh, of the proceeds of this project are going to support the work of rainforest protection. And we also worked with our partner company, Tresorio, in order to decrease the amount of carbon emissions that this project was producing. So we were, uh, if we had done this project in the US, and but with very traditional data centers, we would have probably emitted around 71, 68 to 71 tons of carbon. Uh, but because we worked with Tresorio uh, in large part and took some other measures in order to uh, make the asset lighter, in order to add our own layer two to Ethereum to make this project possible, uh, the combination of that uh, decreased the, the carbon footprint quite significantly down to single digits actually. So um, it's been a, a quite a journey for that project, but really the data is intended to be um, a social movement around rainforest protection, and it just manifests in the form of an NFT that is generative. It's it's evolving constantly, um, wow, and the applicability. Is, yeah, that's such a fantastic idea because you're combining data, the blockchain, and you're actually doing it to social good. Why isn't yeah. this global? Why can I get this? How can I play with it? <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, it is global. It? Why is this uh, not a unicorn already? Yeah, it's going to be launching. We So we haven't opened the sale yet. That's why you haven't got one yet. Um, but you can uh, visit Eternals.io. And if you join our Discord community, uh, that's where we sort of announce what when when we're going to launch it. Uh, so it's already, um, I'd say like maybe 98% there. But obviously, it's a very bad market right now to, to launch uh, things. But also, uh, what we want to do is we want to make sure most of the features are completely live by the time we get to market. Uh, there's been a lot of instances in the NFT space where there's been like a lot of promises to deliver features that never come. So we're trying to make sure that like as many features as possible are live. So the game will be live from the get go. Uh, you will already be able to, to evolve your NFT from the get go, et cetera. So we want to make sure that people see that this is actually a very well intended uh, project and that it, it has a long, long time strategy. Um, uh, you know, other things I've done a lot with is uh, is in the realm of digital identity, obviously. And I just actually last month finished a consultation with the United Nations Development Program on the applicability of new technology and namely blockchain uh, in the um, in the case of creating legal identity systems and civil registry systems. And so currently I'm working on uh, a pilot that does play with a, a fair bit of different types of algorithms as well as NFTs uh, to test out a new approach toward legal identity and civil registry systems. So uh, they would allow for a lot more pseudonymity or anonymity where required and minimize the amount of data you share with different institutions, organizations, and companies. Um, and it would also allow you a lot more control and visibility into the sharing of your data and who, who is accessing your data. So, um, so we've played a, a fair bit with digital identity throughout the years. Of course, a lot of my uh, the awards that you mentioned in the beginning coming from our work in digital identity for displaced populations. And, 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 that's a, and that's an area that I just perhaps wanted to delve into a little yeah. bit. As we're going into the age of data, algorithms, yeah. identity, facial recognition, recognize everything, yeah. I think there's a big uh, challenge between privacy. There's always a trade-off between actual yeah. convenience, personalization, and privacy. 
And you've done some very interesting work. And, you know, one of the great things that it all came together and clashed was when COVID happened, when we had India doing Aarogya Setu, Australia had its own COVID safe, Singapore has traced together. But you worked on an extremely interesting app called Civitas with the Honduran government that balanced privacy that allowed people to get out. So could you tell us a little bit about that? Because for me, this is a great case of technology data all being harnessed in just the right way. Yeah, that was kind of like an emergency. We can't sit here and do nothing kind of thing. Uh, so we like started playing around with a system. Uh, and the intention was really this understanding of like, how do you build uh, identity in a way that protects uh, privacy and minimizes disclosure? And so what is it that you're tracing? And how is it that you can create the types of insights that people need in order to make policy decisions, but at the same time, not sacrifice uh, the patient themselves. And so we uh, worked with a company called Penta. They're our partner in designing a lot of the solutions. We uh, work very well together. And uh, essentially that's what we created. We created a way for patients to call 911 and work through what some of their symptoms might be, what they were feeling or whatever. And what we had noticed was when the pandemic first started, every hospital was attending cases. And the problem with that was that because we weren't so well versed in the symptoms of, of COVID and people were ex experiencing different types of symptoms, that people with COVID were in the same hospital rooms as people that were already immunologically vulnerable because they had other sickness. Obviously when a pandemic starts, other sickness does not stop. And so, uh, so our immediate goal was actually, we were realizing that people were getting sick at hospitals because you were mixing essentially what was going on. So uh, the plan was really like this intervention of saying, okay, first you call 911. And then we sort of put you into these buckets of saying, okay, well, you know, are the symptoms similar to, to COVID? Yes or no. And if no, then we revert you to, we send you to like certain hospitals, depending on your urgency or certain clinics, depending on the non-urgency. And then if it was a COVID uh, related symptom, set of symptoms, then what we would do is we would try to gauge like, okay, we need to send you to telemedicine support because the symptoms are very light, but we need to monitor. Or it seems like if this is actually an urgent case, there are, there are specific hospitals across each city um, that will take a, a COVID case. And what they did was they started sectioning off uh, either areas of hospitals or hospitals entirely in order to manage specifically COVID patients. And so what we were doing was we were creating a funnel and then using that data to sort of uh, create uh, records of like, okay, well, what's going on on the COVID front, right? Like, uh, you know, what are we seeing in terms of symptoms? What are we seeing in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, degree of, of intensity that people are feeling it? So, but this is the same approach that we take toward any digital identity project is this idea that like, you can extrapolate data from the person that, you know, it, that data relates to, to the public. And that said, the person that this does relate to should have visibility into how that data is used. So when you think about digital identity um, and the needs of balancing privacy, really this comes down philosophically to, okay, well, where is it possible to minimize disclosure? Where is it possible to add levels of pseudonymity and not? who is it that really needs to see this data for how long do they actually need it? Like right now we grant basically like lifetime access to data when we opt into things. And that's like completely unacceptable and they don't yep. need the data for that long anyway. And it's just, it's a security vulnerability to have it sitting in their servers. And there's no, like, you know, the, the, the GDPR in the, in the European union. So this is the, the, um, essentially like data rights legislation in the EU has tried very hard 
to give people some sovereignty or some feeling of sovereignty over their data. And I think one of the like, uh, I guess, paramount clauses that people think gives them that is the right to be forgotten. So in Europe, you can compel a company to delete your data yep. from their servers. But obviously, if you take the example of even just Facebook, like you, you've used your Facebook login information to log on to countless other sites to verify your identity and grant access to data across many other sites. So you compelling Facebook to delete it has like no bearing whatsoever on every other thing you've now shared on the basis of you wanted to take a shortcut and therefore you use your Facebook login information. Yeah. And but, so this- Yeah, I, and you know, I, I, I think, I'm just gonna go back to the Civitas thing because something very interesting about it because the way you use blockchain and data where if I needed to go out of the house, I just need to kind of do something with it and it would certify oh, yeah. that I was okay to go out, but it yeah. didn't give away my identity because um, you know you use the blockchain to anonymize the identity. And for yeah. me, this is the fascinating thing, how I need to get access yeah. without surrendering my privacy by using something that anonymizes it. In the old days, we used to think about PGP and all of that stuff to mask it. Yeah. But clearly, the blockchain is a more efficient way. Um, so, what do you think is going to happen in that? Will we all have this little thingy that anonymizes everything, puts it on the chain, allows me to people to see that I'm kosher, but not reveal my identity? What do you, what do you think so we didn't put the, that data. We only put the transaction, the transaction metadata on the blockchain, right? Because for us, that's another piece that's really important: is what data does belong on a blockchain, what data does not, what data should have some degree of immutability what should not and so this idea that like you were cleared to go out sure like that that should be you know on a on a chain somewhere to verify that like you have a, a record of consistency um but the like whether you're okay or not that should not be on on the Absolutely. blockchain so I, I think that's a very important distinction there um and i the uh key but thing there isn't was also that like, the future isn't that where we need to go that we actually say listen i have my identity i need to access a service and the service only needs to see a particular yes. signal and not necessarily see all the processing that led to that, you know, the fact that you are okay to do it. Isn't yeah, really I think the, the best example to illustrate that for someone that might not be, you know, well-versed in blockchain is this idea of uh, a bar. <laughs> this, is a bar. this is my favorite example. Uh, so you go to a bar and uh, what is the legal drinking age in India? Well, I don't know. I don't live in India, but I would suspect it's 18 or 21. I mean, okay, I mean Singapore, Singapore is 18. Yeah, 18, Singapore great. Is 18. So, uh, so uh, okay. I hope okay. I got that right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll uh, we'll be sure, and we'll use uh, we'll use Honduras. It's eighteen. So, uh, so when I go to a bar, generally they need some form of ID, right? And you're handing over, you know, your passport, your driver's license, your national ID card, or whatever. But this is foundational ID. This is like ID that you use to to like ascertain your rights and responsibilities, and like your citizenry and your like international rights as well. Um, and this is what you're using to get into a bar and the bar, like if you have a driver's license that has your height and your eye color and all of these like, you know, really deep information or your address or you have a document like a passport number, then, you, you know, you're really exposing this to literally anyone. The, the bouncer Absolutely. does not need to know all of this information. The bouncer needs to know two things. One is your picture to see that you are, in fact, who you're supposed who you to be. Who you claim you are. Yep. And Two is they need to know you are over 18. They don't even need to know your age. They don't need to know I'm 32. They need to know I'm over 18. 
And Absolutely. so those are the two bits of data that they need. So when you design systems with, you know, partial anonymity, pseudonymity, when you just, uh, when you give people options to use usernames and codes and when you, uh, or when it requires full disclosure, like you can play with the design of that because that's, that is the world that we're going toward. However, there's, uh, and I love to say this very, very often, there's no causational relationship between using a blockchain and having more privacy. There's no causational relationship between more security or uh, there's no causational relationship between, you know, this tech being used responsibly and done ethically and using this technology, because that has to be very intentional in who's building this, who's participating in the build of this, who's auditing, are they using, you know, uh, are they pulling from open source software, are they uh, opening up their software, what is it that, you know, what are these processes that people are using to build the technology, because ultimately, you know, there's a lot of pro identity projects out there that are saying, hey, you know, we're the next great identity project, but it's a little bit obscured, or um, it's been designed with like one life experience in mind, which is typically like an American white male that went to college, you know, and so when you sort of start seeing uh, big tech teams that look like that, it becomes very difficult to naturally embed the levels of privacy and um, and I guess like uh, access controls that you would want to see in a system if you have ever lived in a country where like the government has tried to overreach or if you lived, have you ever been in a situation where you were displaced or if you've ever been in a situation where some component of your identity was actually the source of a, discrim a discriminatory act against you, right? It becomes a question of who is building our identity systems because if you've ever experienced anything that made you not want to be identifiable or to have identity, then, then these are the people that should be at the forefront of decision-making when it comes to the design of these kinds of systems. And I think that's super, super important. No, you touched upon such a lovely area and I think you expounded on that so well. For me, the whole idea is not about whether there's a technology, but the intentionality behind the technology. Yes. But there's a second nuance to it, which is that all people start with great intentions, like Elon Musk yes. is saying about Twitter, and we'll find out. <laughs> but he's always going to end up with something because it's a slippery slope the moment the data exists as to how it's being used. And especially where national identity systems are concerned. And this is something that I've always had. You know, the thing that you said, it's not about going into a bar. You go to an office premise and they ask you for the ID and I'm like, you're holding it for so long. I and mean, what are you doing with it, right? It's like me. You know? <laughs> And when you have a national identity system, like for India, for example, it's changed the country with, with Aadhaar when they're saying 1.3 billion Indians now have a digital ID, which I can just yes. access any service to a fingerprint. So it's game changing from an access point of view. It democratizes that. Mm -hmm. And it's frightening from of course. what if it gets into the wrong hands. Of course. And at least I'm really, really, uh, you know, I could probably do a podcast just on this one topic with you. So <laughs> and I'll probably follow up. So because this introducing intentionality into technology is probably going to be the single biggest need as i see it in the next decade to balance off this issue of privacy and um, access you know and kind of trying to balance the trade off between the two yeah it's also concerning when you start thinking about like okay what types of services in the decentralized ecosystem can a government roll out so okay they can do digital id and then they also do a wallet because you know you're going to have to deal with like stable coins or central bank based wallets but now you sort of start to wonder like how is this designed because you if a government can see everything that relates to my identity and identity verification and everywhere i'm going and, and doing checks from my, of my id but then at the same time, they can see my money flows, then that becomes a very interesting uh, precedent, right? Because and, and that is the trick, isn't it? 
how can they authorize the service and just provide that authentication yeah. without being able to see what happened? Yeah, but how many people really are really going to be the trick? Somebody is going to get this one right, and that person yeah. is going to literally change the world, like Tim Berners Lee did. And because I say this, because quite obviously there's a lot of bad intentionality even in blockchain, right? I mean, you know, you have Bitcoin and all that. You have the wonderful thing of decentralization, but you don't know what's happening on the dark web and stuff like that. So I think somewhere along the way, this finding this balance of how somebody can just say, "I'm happy to stop the authentication and do nothing more." Yeah. But to provide that layer. And unfortunately, it needed to be a trusted source like a government. But then again, government's also not trusted. So it's a, it's a big, yeah. um, I think it, it's, it's, it's going to be fascinating to see how things play out. Um, and it's such a fascinating thing to talk about identity, uh, Lucia. But, you know, I think we're going to come back. I know that you're an expert on migration of people, on how cryptocurrency is being used to stop corruption and so many more fascinating topics. So we'll come back with another video, with another episode of this uh, and meanwhile, to my viewers and listeners, it's been great to have Lucia. Don't go away. She's going to come back and tell us how data and AI and blockchain is being used to solve social problems like migrant workers, like corruption, etc. Thanks for listening to this episode of Steps to the Algo. We're available on Spotify, Apple, Google, YouTube, and everywhere else you can find us. And we will be back with more from Lucia on how data and AI are being used to create social impact. Thank you for listening.